Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Katrine Erickson, the Executive Director of the Rungsland Research Program, a nonprofit focused on preventing cancer in patients with a rare inherited blood cancer predisposition called Runks one Familial Platelet Disorder. I'm also an inaugural member of the Milken Institute Faster Cures Leaders Link Program. And in this podcast series, I will share interviews with leaders in the healthcare space who have made significant advances in the diseases they work on through their roles in venture philanthropy, pharma, biotech, academia, venture capital, regulatory agencies, and more. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing John Crowley. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, a global biotechnology company dedicated to rare diseases. John didn't start out his career developing medicines for rare diseases, but was thrust into it in 1998 when two of his children were diagnosed with Pompeii disease, which is a severe and often fatal neuromuscular dystrophy disorder. Just two short years later, in 2000, he started a company called Novazyme Pharmaceuticals, developing a new treatment for Pompeii disease, which ultimately saved his children's lives. A year later, Novazyme was acquired by Genzyme Corporation for nearly $200 million. His heroic story has been memorialized in both a book and a major motion picture called Extraordinary Measures. John, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Your story is so moving and brings so much hope. It's a true testament to the power of action. For those listeners who aren't familiar with your family story, could you please share how you went from a father of two children with Pompeii disease, a disease which you shared that you knew nothing about at the time that they were diagnosed, to the founder and CEO of Novazyme Pharmaceuticals, the company that initially discovered and ultimately advanced preclinical development of the most compelling drug compound for Pompeii disease at that time. Katrine, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be able to share a little bit of our journey, but then more of the um, kind of in the so what category. You know, so what have we learned throughout this journey and, and some of the lessons learned, some uh, unfortunately learned through a lot of trial and error. You know, they, I think it's been written that we tend to suffer our way to wisdom in life. So I think any small measure of of wisdom in, in, in this life journey and into the world of medicine and biotechnology is something we're privileged to share. I grew up in northern New Jersey. My dad was a, a police officer. My mom was a waitress. And so from that background, I, I was blessed to be able to go to some really great schools. And, and at the end of all of it, have a plan in life together with a lot of student loans um, and and um, you know nature and life um, as it so often does kind of intervenes in that journey and for us it was in the spring of 1998 as you alluded to when our then 15 month old daughter Megan was diagnosed with this rare form of muscular dystrophy known as Pompeii disease and we were told that there was very little research and that it was a fatal neuromuscular disease. And, and at that point, Megan was seemingly normal. She just wasn't walking and was maybe a little weaker than normal, you know, bright as can be, but just wasn't hitting those milestones, you know, which took us from pediatrician to neurologist, from blood test to muscle biopsy. And obviously, as for so many of us, um, many families in the rare diseases or more broadly, whether it's cancers, 
that you work in or, or other areas where there's a devastating diagnosis with a grim prognosis, it changes your life in an instant. And for us, it was kind of doubly changed in that the doctor told us that on that same day, our seven-day-old son, Patrick, had a one in four chance of having this disease that there was no history of in our family. You know, we were silent carriers and like any or many um, genetic diseases, not until you have a child. And even then there's only a one in four chance for an autosomal recessive disorder mm -hmm. that the disease would manifest. And so that brought us into the world of, of medicine, science, biotechnology, and we were determined to first learn everything we could about the disease and then very quickly settled on determination to try to do everything we could to, to change that diagnosis. And it led us into finding scientists and doing that kind of nights and weekends. And then finally, I, I was at a consulting firm and then at Bristol Myers and a pharmaceutical company, of course, and then really didn't want to have any regrets that you know, looking back years later that, you know, we didn't try everything. And so left that job and started a small company. And as you indicated, had some success and eventually was able to uh, merge that with what was at the time, the largest rare disease company in the world at Genzyme and advance it to a life-saving medicine that by January of 2003, our, our children received it in a clinical study and it reversed entirely the life-threatening enlargement of their hearts and for a time made them stronger. And, and, and I'll come back to that, but that's an important notion of time and what it gave us in terms of not only time to live and for our children to, to thrive for a period, but also to kind of go back to the drawing board and to think about what can we do better, which is you know what, what brought me to what we do today at, at Amicus. So often that's the case, right, where therapies make an impact on the patients who receive them initially, but they end up being incremental. And then you have to sort of think, okay, we've made these improvements and how can we now improve on that? Exactly right. You know, almost rarely do we have in, in medicine and in science a silver bullet cure where we can say that we've tackled the disease, let's move on. As you said, these are incremental, but hopefully meaningful improvements. And it's about two things. The only two things we seek to do with medicines, to extend and enhance human life, um, to buy more time, uh, time on this earth with the people we love, and, and time again for we as scientists, entrepreneurs, to go back to the drawing board and think about how can we do this a little bit better and, and quality of life along the way. Absolutely. Well, as you know, I definitely want to dig into uh, your company, Amicus. But before I do that, I do want to talk a little bit about leadership and leadership principles. As I was preparing for this interview, I came across a statement you've made many times when asked, you know, why or how did you make the decision to start Novazyme? And every time you say the same thing, I did it because we had to. And I, I think this highlights your innate sense of leadership and I firmly believe that not every person would tackle your family's situation the same way. I think you have to have an extreme amount of courage and faith to just go for it. So I don't typically start these kinds of interviews going right into leadership, but I, I do want to hear from you about what do you view as the principles that were fundamental to your success and your continued success today? You know, Katrina, I think looking back at that time, again, Frankly, in that dire situation, we did it because no one else wanted to, or no one else was able to. 
Mm -hmm. uh, when I say we did it because we had to, it was not only because for our children and others like them, is because no one else was, was stepping up at that time to really catalyze the science. And it's important too for a lot of health challenges, particularly in these diseases, to realize that it's a race against not only the mistakes of nature, but against time. And that's just so critically important to always realize. As I reflect back on it, a couple of things that I've learned, you know, the traits of great entrepreneurs, some of which I've worked with, some I've read about, some in, in the case of my daughter, Megan, I've lived with. And if I can, maybe I'll just touch on a couple of those. And, and it gets to leadership. Um, one is hope. You've got to be able to deliver hope for people. Mm -hmm. And what's going to oftentimes be in these diseases, hope tempered with reality. But you've got to provide that, that hope, that sense that there's something out there, something on the horizon that could make a difference. And even then realize it may not be in time for you or your loved one, but it will move the ball forward and it will advance science. And while it may not benefit you or people like you today, it'll benefit someone in the future, that child diagnosed today with whatever disease, who five, 10, 20 years may benefit. So that hope is so important. The second is optimism. You've, you've got to be an optimist. You've got to believe you can make this work. You've got to believe in yourself and your team and, and you, with all the setbacks that you're destined to have, that notion of never, never, never quit, that optimism is so important. Third, I think is persistence. Biotechnology, medicine, science, drug development, this is a really, really tough thing that we do. I, you know, we can raise millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. We can hire Nobel scientists, build the most magnificent research facilities. And almost every idea we have, almost every molecule we try, it doesn't work. Right. Failure <laughs> rates are high. It's remarkably high. And so you've got to persist. You've got to figure out, okay, why didn't it work? The, the toughest thing I think in drug development is knowing when to stop. When have you pushed it far enough that you need to step back and figure out another road? And even in that embedded is the notion of resilience and persistence. This is not a business for the faint of heart. Um, so that, that persistence is so important. And then the fourth thing I think is dream. You've got to dream big and it's related to the concept of vision. When we started Novozyme and when we started Amicus or, or any of these ventures, Yes, we focus on the, on the planning and the spreadsheets and PowerPoint and Gantt charts and project timelines. That, that's all important. But one of the first things I do is to go offsite with a team when we're starting a new enterprise and to spend a day or two and, and dream and to think, you know, what, what does this part of the world that you're focused on, the problem that your enterprise is going to find solutions for, what does it look like 5, 10, 20 years? For us, it was, what does the world of Pompeii look like when we started Novozyme? Mm -hmm. When it was Amicus, it was even a bigger vision. It was, what does the world of rare diseases look like 10 or 20 years looking out? Uh, and, and those, I think, are all the elements of being a great entrepreneur, of being flexible, of being mission-driven um, that, that have served us well. I didn't know any of that at the time. We've, we've had to learn a lot of it. And again, we or I have made way more mistakes than probably good decisions. And again, in the, in the spirit of suffering our way to wisdom, those are what I think are, are some of the key lessons I've learned. But underlying it all, and I'll, I'll finish with this thought to this question is, 
I still believe the greatest trait that a leader can have is empathy. To, to feel the, the hope or the fear of another to stand in their shoes, um, that to me is the, the greatest trait of, of any leader. So I often tell our team, try to think in any situation, if you had this rare disease, whatever it may be that you were working on, or you were the parent of a child with that disease, what decisions would you make? When would you start a program, stop a program? Where would you invest capital? Who would you hire? It makes for better science, makes for better drug development and, and a better spirit and mission, and it'll make you a better person. Wow, so true. And I, you know, I noticed as you were answering all these questions about what you thought it took to be a successful leader, you use the term we a lot. And I think that reflects obviously your great respect and how much you value team. And then of course, that's a perfect segue as you talk about empathy. So it sounds like empathy is really one of those characteristics that you value and that you probably are looking for in team members. And so maybe I can transition to when you founded Amicus after leaving Genzyme, you started with four employees and you've built it now to, I believe, well over 500. What are some of the characteristics that you look for when you're building out your team? It was at early 05, I came to really launch the company. And again, we started with that mission focus. Even in choosing the name, we wanted to always be science-driven, business-led, science-driven, but have that patient focus at the center of everything we do. So even in choosing the name for the company, we chose the word uh, amicus, the Latin word for friend. We wanted to be the most patient-focused, patient-friendly company in all of biotechnology. And our mission has always been to seek the highest quality therapies for people living with rare diseases. I shared that with our investors early on. I share that with our investors today. And I share it with everybody we interview to come into the company that our first mission is for patients. And you've got to explain that. We don't run a foundation. We are building a vibrant and sustainable business, which means being mindful of you know, things like cash flow and, and a path to profitability. That's very important. That's going to create vibrant, sustainable businesses that reward shareholders for their risk-taking. And I'm a big believer in the importance of a free enterprise, free market system to drive drug development. And it's also aligned, though, with patient interests in that if we can develop the best medicines and if we can get them to as many patients as quickly as possible, we will develop the best and most valuable businesses so they're perfectly aligned interests. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about employees, they've got to buy into that mission. They've got to embrace the patient journey. We spend a lot of time at Amicus listening and watching and, and learning about patients and their lives and their journeys. And during COVID, it's been a lot of Zoom calls. But before that, it was a lot of in-person visits with families, hearing their stories. And so when we interview people at Amicus, you know, in addition to that mission focus, that patient-driven sense of purpose... We describe that every Amicus employee has to be a passionate entrepreneur. So they have to have the passion, that mission focus, and they have to have the, the, the mindset of an entrepreneur. We, we may be about 500 people today, and we may be 5,000 down the road, but you know the size of the company doesn't make you entrepreneurial. It's, it's really your mindset. 
How do you think nimbly? How do you roll up your sleeves? How do you not be constrained by prior thinking? How do you adapt to uncertainty? Um, so those are the things. I, that's the mission-driven element and, and a little bit of the magic of what we try to build into Amicus. And those qualities of, above all others are, are being passionate entrepreneurs. So tell me a little bit about what drove you to start Amicus in the first place. Of course, you had an interest in Pompeii disease, but what was the gap you felt was not being filled by others? I mean, you talk now about patient centricity and really doing this in a collaborative way, but were there other areas in which you felt Amicus could really make a huge difference? Yeah, for us, you know, the kids, Megan and Patrick, were treated with that enzyme therapy. It's an every other week therapy and their first treatments began in early 2003. And it fixed their hearts, it made them stronger for about a year. And then we saw the muscle strength improvements plateau. And then it was a gradual decline back to kind of where they began. And, and that was tough. I was thankful that they had the medicine and it saved their lives and improved it for a time. But I realized within Pompeii, we needed to go back to the drawing board. And I needed to think about another potentially better way to treat the disease. And I spent about a year looking at ideas, programs, technologies, and it in doing that in you know, 2003 and four, I realized how much unmet need there was in the rare diseases. You know, you look at seven to 8,000 known rare diseases that around the world affect about a half a billion people, more than 30 million just here in the United States. And virtually none of them had any treatments whatsoever. Many of them people hadn't even yet categorized. So for me, the, the idea to start Amicus and to launch it with a very big vision was part personal again, although this time I realized it would be more of a marathon, a lifelong journey than a sprint in developing better medicines in Pompeii. But we had an even bigger vision. We wanted to build the next great rare disease global company in biotechnology. And so we always had a very big vision. We said we'd start with one particular technology, small molecule precision medicines known as pharmacologic chaperones, but that we would be agnostic as to technology. We'd always look at what the next best alternatives may be. And that's part of being science driven. So those, that's really what catalyzed the start of Amicus. It was part personal and part professional to build something very significant that can ultimately do research in many, many rare diseases. And today, Amicus, I'm proud. We have an idea that was a small molecule precision medicine is now an approved medicine around the world for people living with uh, certain mutations of Febre disease, um, one of the larger of the, the rare genetic diseases. And we have a late stage program that's hopefully nearing approval for that next generation approach in Pompeii disease that has the potential to be the next standard of care and we've now built the largest portfolio of gene therapies in the rare diseases in the whole industry. And there we've, we could work on up to 50 different rare diseases. Um, so that's exciting. It's exciting to see you know, where we came from, where we are today. It has not been a straight line by any means, and we've learned a lot along the way, but I'm, I'm immensely proud of, of the team. And again, I think it's continuing the themes of hope, optimism, persistence, and dreaming along the way. A lot of, yeah. lot of persistence. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredibly exciting for the rare disease community at large to see a company be established and have such big dreams and goals. And um, I think there's a lot of us in the rare disease world that are looking to Amicus and saying, bravo, this is great. Thank you. 
maybe we could use Pompeii again as an example, because I wanted to understand a little bit more about how patients really have influenced or impacted your strategy. Yeah, you know, it's one thing, look, everybody in biotech today says they're patient focused and you look at the right. website and pictures and many, many are and increasingly so, but I, I think we do it maybe a little differently with, with all humility at, at Amicus. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. We, um, most companies now have a department of patient advocacy. Back at Novozyme, we were the first to ever do that. And maybe that was a lack of experience where it, for me as an entrepreneur and a dad, just seemed to make sense. I wanna hear the patient voice. I need somebody to constantly be the conscience of the company, to be the ombudsman. Um, and so we had a, I, I just have to interrupt and say I yeah. had no idea that Novozyme was one of the first or the first to have an advocacy arm. I think we were the first. We had a director of patient advocacy back in 2000. And, wow. um, and I took that to Amicus, and it was one of the first teams that we built. And Jane Gershkowitz, who's now our chief patient advocate has built that team and, and Jane, I, I believe is, you know, the, the, the greatest example of a patient advocate, but importantly for us, you know, it doesn't run through our, our marketing or our medical affairs teams. It's an independent group within the organization that reports directly to me. Jane reports to me, sits on our executive committee, participates in all of our board of directors meetings. She is a C-suite level executive. So I think that's both internally and externally a recognition of the importance of the patient voice. Um, you know, we, we also were the first company to establish patient advisory boards. So we have a, a, an SAB, a scientific advisory board. We have medical advisory boards for each of the diseases we work in. But we also have patient advisory boards where we have people living with these diseases or their parents or family representatives for every disease or family of diseases that we work in, even preclinical programs. And we bring them into the company a couple of times a year. They're under CDA, confidentiality agreements. We share with them everything we're doing, our science data, our regulatory strategies, our clinical trial protocols. For example, in Pompeii disease back before we went into the clinic, about a year before with our new enzyme therapy, it was 2015. And we had our Pompeii patient advisory board coming together and we shared with them our clinical protocol before we shared it with our medical advisory board. And one of the things wow. we looked at were endpoints. You know, we asked it question, what's meaningful for you? And we were thinking about, you know, the, the six minute walk and force vital capacity and biomarkers and biopsies and all that. Some of which were good ideas, some probably a little more academic than they needed to be. And we, we, we got great feedback. It made our program stronger. And I remember our daughter, Megan, who was 18 at the time, asked to be a member of our patient advisory board. And I said, I, I, I don't make that decision. I said, call, call Jane and ask her. And she did. And so Megan went to the advisory board. She was the youngest member. I wasn't even in the room, but I've heard this uh, told by others that she was kind of quiet and reserved, which she's typically not, but she was that day. Mm -hmm. And the microphone came to her and each person, each patient was to talk about what's meaningful for them. And she said, um, two things would be meaningful for me for a new medicine. One would be if I could breathe without my ventilator for just one minute. Oh. And she said that, I think, because she realized it's an accident with her trach or her ventilator that's the most life-threatening aspect of her disease today. 
So just the safety of breathing on her own for a minute was so meaningful. So insightful to and have the her second, there to say uh, that. Remarkable. And the second thing, maybe even more so, Katrine, or more emotional at least, she said, and if I could be able to speak just a little bit more clearly so that when I go to college, I could make more friends. Oh. I, you know, that you could kind of hear a pin drop in the room from what I've been told. And, and it just conveyed, you know, the, the importance of that patient voice. Um, and, and lots of other things we do throughout the company to, to constantly build that in. And, and we don't do it perfectly by any means. And we're still learning and we're still making mistakes. But um, it's just such a hallmark of, of who we are. Wow. That is an incredible story. Was it something that you could actually implement as, a, as an endpoint? You know, it's interesting. We built in all different types of ways beyond quantitative measures to understand qualitatively how patients were doing. And, and they're not yet approvable endpoints, yeah. but they fill in pieces of the story, the patient journey. And that increasingly, I, I think, is going to be important for regulators. So it's, it's, it's a piece of what we study, yes. I think we're getting there, right? It just unfortunately takes yeah. time. They, they, to still, they, still, they still want six-minute walk and forced vital capacity and biomarkers, right. and, and those are all important. But um, I think hopefully we'll evolve regulatory science to be able to look holistically at a disease, especially a rare disease where it's just so hard to pick one endpoint. A lot of what we do at Amicus is developing next-generation therapies like we just did in Pompeii, where we don't go in a clinical study head-to-head -head against a placebo. We go against an approved medicine and try to show superiority. And look, it's hard enough in the rare diseases to show superiority against a placebo, let alone against a standard of care medicine. Yeah. Um, so, you know, To roll the dice on a single endpoint is always challenging in any clinical setting. It's particularly problematic in the rare diseases. Um, but we'll, we'll, we're finding a way through, and, and, and the FDA and European regulators are, are evolving and, and showing you know, quite a bit of sophistication in their regulatory science, but also in their patient approach. And that I've seen in the last couple of years, the FDA embracing the patient journey and the patient perspective, which is going to be so important to the approval of medicines ahead. It's great to see, and I'm looking forward to, to watching and hopefully being a part of that evolution. I'd like to, if we can, dig into your business strategy and what criteria you consider when prioritizing specific rare diseases to invest in at Amicus. And to give you some context to my question, a primary goal for us at RRP is to invest in research tools and create resources and even invest in projects that would demonstrate to future potential industry partners that certain risks have been taken off the table, so to speak. And as you know, with over 1,200 rare disease nonprofit organizations, of course, that's not covering the seven to 8,000 we talked about earlier, but at least there's that many nonprofit organizations out there fighting for treatments for their patient community. Many of us are thinking about how do we attract industry? How do we get companies to invest in our disease? So I'd like to get into what de-risking a therapeutic approach mean to you at Amicus. And again, what can nonprofit organizations do to facilitate that process of de-risking R&D investment? Yeah, it's a great point. And uh, you know, I, I tell our team that we are not in the risk mitigation business. We are in the risk-taking business, but we try to take smart risks. And, and that's hard to, to gauge in biotech. I'll give you an example of what we did coming into the gene therapy field. You know, I, 
I first heard of gene therapy weeks after Megan and Patrick were diagnosed when I was going through literature and reading things that were all new to me. And I, I learned for the first time about gene therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I called one of the researchers and asked some probably pretty naive questions. And then I asked a question, of course, when can this be in children with Pompeii? He said it would be a year, maybe two years. That was in 1998. We are now just on the cusp of treating patients with gene therapies for Pompeii. So for years and decades, the field had struggled. But once we started to see breakthroughs, the next generation technologies, we saw advancements in diseases like spinal muscular atrophy and, and others. I said, Amicus, if we're going to be a leader in genetic medicine and rare diseases. We need to be a leader in gene therapy. And what we did, we took about a year to look at it strategically. We didn't run after the first shiny nickel or the first program with a press release that looked promising. We tried to be pretty thoughtful about it. And what we did, we actually began not with technologies, but with diseases. We started with about a thousand. Oh, and wow. we, yeah, it was a, quite an effort. Like I said, it took about a year. And we winnowed that down to um, about a hundred that we ultimately would love to be a part of in making a difference. But even within that, we prioritized it the first 10 or 15. And the criteria we looked at, you know, we looked at um, unmet need, how severe, how devastating the diseases are. We wanted to work in the most severe and devastating. We looked at technology fit with gene therapy broadly. We looked at where could we bring technology. And we, you know, we're experts in protein engineering. So where could we combine protein engineering technology and skill with gene therapy technology and delivery. We looked at the size of populations. Um, we looked at regulatory pathways. We looked at whether biomarkers were available. We looked at manufacturing, the scale of manufacturing that would be necessary. We looked at time. How long could it take to embark on a research and clinical program? We looked at overall cost. And we didn't have some model that we plugged it into a spreadsheet or anything that said yes or no at the end, it was a judgment call with trying to take all those factors into account. And so for us, that's how we constantly think about it. Now that was building the, the portfolio over the next year or so, adding programs, technologies, um, an original uh, acquisition that we did of a small company that was spun out of Nationwide Children's Hospital founded by uh, Dr. Brian Kaspar and some entrepreneurs and a father of two young girls with a rare brain disease called Batten disease. And that brought us our, our Batten programs and a handful of others. And then we really um, expanded significantly into gene therapy with our collaboration with Dr. Jim Wilson and the University of Pennsylvania. In fact, we ended up moving first all of our research to Philadelphia. And in the last six months, our global headquarters to Philadelphia. So it's our flagship for Amicus. And again, that was a notion that we really need to collaborate side by side with the best in the field. Um, so for us, th those are the factors. Th that's the way we think about these programs. And you know, working with patient organizations continues to be so critically important to, for us to be able to learn and to partner. I'm curious if you're able to share a little bit about how that collaboration is structured with UPenn. Yes, of course. So we, the original collaboration we signed in October of 2018, and it was focused on Pompeii disease gene therapy, Fabry gene therapy, and the development of a gene therapy for 
another rare neurologic disease known as CDKL5 deficiency disorder, or CDD. We had such great success in the preliminary proof of concept of combining the amicus and the UPenn technologies about seven or eight months later that we expanded that collaboration in May of 2019 to cover up to 50 genetic diseases. They were the majority of lysosomal disorders like Febre and Pompe and others, but it was also 12 larger rare diseases, only three of which we've disclosed, nine of which we've not yet. We've disclosed that we're working in Angelman syndrome, Rett and myotonic dystrophy, but there are other disorders, including some very large musculoskeletal diseases that we're working with Jim Wilson and his UPenn team. We pay for all of the drug development once a candidate is declared, and we have multiple now in development. Those Batten programs are now, um, we've treated children, we've seen really encouraging results, particularly in um, CLN6 and CLN3, Batten disease, and we're committed to moving those forward now to their pivotal studies, a lot of work on the manufacturing of those gene therapies. And then with UPenn, we also provide, uh, for instance, uh, in addition to all of the program funding and, and research funding there, we also provide a $10 million a year research stipend to Dr. Wilson and his team for general platform discovery work, um, whether it's looking at improved targeting or improved safety, improved manufacturability of the gene therapy technologies. And any of which apply to those 50 diseases, Amicus will have rights to for the others, Jim and his team and UPenn will be free to develop. So it's a very, very broad collaboration. What a great example of a strong partnership between academia and industry. Do you think that this is really going to be more common in the future? I think it will be. I think, you know, if you look at the Orphan Disease Center and the Gene Therapy Center at UPenn, the Wilson Lab, it's, it's really unique and really extraordinary with Jim Wilson and his team have really built, uh, you know, it's hundreds of scientists with remarkable capabilities from basic science all the way through manufacturing and regulatory capabilities. So they're a great partner. There are some firms who have partnered with Jim and other diseases where they really kind of outsource to the Wilson lab all of the development work. Amicus was, you know, perhaps a bit more advanced and, and much of the work we can do in tandem or the later stage work like clinical manufacturing, other activities we can do within Amicus. Uh, but it is a great partnership. We've got you know, joint steering teams uh, overall for the relationship for each of these programs. And we're you know, constantly working side by side with, uh, with Jim and his team. So it's worked great for us and it's something we'd love to expand going forward. It makes so much sense to leverage each other's strengths and combine them and be synergistic. Yes, and Because for sure. certainly you'll accelerate towards these these treatments much faster together. It's fantastic. We have to beat time, yes, as much yes. as as much as nature. I say this all the time. I say time is our biggest enemy. So I'm with you on that. I want to transition to another kind of partnership discussion, and that is this concept of you know venture philanthropy. As you know, it was sensationalized by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in 2014 when they sold royalty rights valued at 3.3 billion from the drug company Vertex. I'm curious if you feel that this is something you at Amicus would be interested in or open to, and when and how would it make sense, do you think? I, we are certainly open to it, Katrina. We haven't done that yet. Uh, we collaborate with a lot of patient foundations, 
we haven't uh, had the venture philanthropy model as part of what we do at Amicus, but I'd be open to it in the future. It's been successful for others. I think it, you know it's going to depend on the disease, the molecule, the research program, and, and the foundation. Um, but it, it, anything that brings greater collaboration or additional capital, I, I think is a great thing. That's good to hear. It's something that we in the nonprofit sector, you know, view as, as one of the great success stories, but also always want to keep in mind that whatever we pursue, that in the end, it's not about sustainability or, you know, getting returns on investments. It's really about just making sure that any potential valuable treatment gets to patients as quickly as possible. And if that means, you know, partnering with industry and helping to support something move quicker and have something be prioritized within that company, then that makes sense from the nonprofit perspective, of course, too. Yeah, I could not agree more. Before we close, John, I'd like to ask you what you're most excited about in biotech today. What do you see as game-changing in the future? You know, I really do think that we are on the cusp of this golden age of genetic medicine. I think in the years ahead, you know, as the costs of sequencing the entire human genome come down, I think it'll become part of the routine practice of medicine. I think newborn screening, um, all the way down to the genetic level, understanding any challenges that a child may have that are identifiable early on. I think are going to lead to much better, better outcomes and, and really the potential to alleviate an enormous amount of, of human suffering from many disorders. So the technologies I see are so exciting. You know, we're, we're, it's, it's kind of a balance. We're mix, we're balancing taking today's exciting technologies forward, whether those are CAR T therapies and cancer, whether it's gene therapies now that more and more we're using in genetic disease and potentially in more prevalent disorders to really thinking about the next, um, front, the next frontiers of science. Gene editing that wasn't even invented a decade ago yeah. um, is now coming to the forefront and I'm hopeful that we'll see more and more successes there. And so that maybe not immediately, but over the next decade or so, you can start to see those great ideas translated into medicines and I, I'm hopeful in, in my world of rare and genetic diseases that many of the diseases that people live with and struggle with today will someday soon be kind of footnotes in medical textbooks and part of medical history. And, and we can declare victory. It will make, uh, again, it will extend and enhance human life, which has been our goal all along. So I, I'm very, very excited. We need a lot of barriers to break down, a lot of basic science a lot of development. But you think about what we've done with COVID in the last year, Katrine. That was, I mean, this was our industry's finest hour. To go from the sequencing of the COVID-19 virus at the end of January of 2020 to less than a year later, having an approved vaccine that you see now, at least here now in the United States and in some other places, has a change the entire perspective of, of, of how we live and to you know have prevented lots of people from getting COVID and, and all the health challenges and ultimately for many the death associated with that. This is really great, but you think about what we did. We advanced, number one, the greatest science that we could, state-of-the-art technology. Secondly, we realized that we had to do it soon. We, we always knew we probably would have a vaccine but early on, a lot of people thought it would take three, five, seven years. So that race against time, that 
fierce urgency of time was so important. And the third thing, and this is important lesson for all medicine and development, was access. Nobody ever said in the United States that, well, if you know, as long as you can afford your copay, you'll get your COVID-19 vaccine, or if you've got health insurance, otherwise, oh well. No, mm -hmm. it was everybody needs this. And now we need to take that, and we are taking that mindset to the world. And we're seeing now the United States becoming a leader in, in vaccine distribution and access around the world. We need to continue that. Remember that um, you know, the, the president has, has said that we need to become the, the world's leader in global vaccines. We, we already are, and we just need to make sure that people around the world have access to that. So for me, those are all the things I'm excited about. Great science, but we need to make sure it's married with access, universal access for everybody in need, frankly, for everybody around the world. And that's a, a big, big commitment, but, but it's exciting too. You know, finally now, so many of these families in the position like we were in years ago, doctors and scientists can finally convey hope where so many people never had hope before. And you know, you fast forward to today where our kids are. Megan is now 24 years old. Patrick is 23. Um, they're, you know, look, they're still affected by the disease. They're still on ventilators. They're still in wheelchairs. Thankfully, the disease never affects their mind. And so Megan, two years ago, graduated from Notre Dame with a double major. And just wow. a few weeks, just I know, just and just a few weeks ago, earned her master's in social work from University of North Carolina. And she wants to be a social worker working with children with rare diseases. So, you know, to live a happy, fulfilled life is what we always want for our kids. And with great science and the help of a lot of nurses and doctors and a very active guardian angel, uh, our kids <laughs> have, have gotten, you know, to where they are today. And I'm hopeful that in the future, kids with Pompeii and other diseases never have to go through all the challenges that they did. But man, have they uh, risen above. And Megan is already practicing one of the characteristics that you mentioned was so critical, and that's empathy. I mean, look at the, the profession she's choosing to go into. She clearly has uh, you know, huge empathy for those who are suffering from rare diseases to want to be a social worker. I think that's profoundly uh, moving to know that she's you know, following in your footsteps and learned a lot from you. And, and I think you you even started on the call saying that you learned so much from her as well. That's true. You know, I think you, a lot of parents of children with with special needs will tell you that they they learn more from their children than they ever teach them, without their children ever knowing that they're kind of imparting these lessons along the way. And and maybe that's one of the gifts through all of this, Katrina. Absolutely. Well, John, this has been such a wonderful experience to sit down with you and and learn from your great wisdom. Well, I don't know about that. That's, this is where my daughter would roll her eyes. That's, that's very kind. <laughs> well, I'd like to close. I'm not going to close until I ask you this one final question. And that's, sure. you know, looking back, looking back on your journey up until where you are today, what's the one piece of advice you would like to impart on others who have similar goals, people who want to find cures for the diseases they care about? I'd go back to uh, those traits that I talked about in the beginning, the hope, the optimism, the persistence, and dream. You've got a dream. And I think always remember along the way that it's bigger than you. Absolutely. Dream, dream. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, John. It's been of a course. true yeah. honor. Yeah.
Great. great to see. Oh, great. My honor. Thank you for taking Yeah, thank you. Have a great weekend with your family, okay? And you take too. care. Be well. Bye now. Bye.